Southbridge. It's fall. Are you ready? Ten Fridays till Christmas. Welcome to Southbridge. If this is your first time here, we're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning, and I hope that you found your way to the first-time guest kiosk. That's the tent actually outside under the um, awning out there. And if you haven't, please, um, please visit there. We have a gift for you. It's just our way of saying thank you for being here. And if you'd be inclined, if you'd be willing, we'd love to know how you found out about Southbridge. And you can do that by filling out the connection card, which you found in the bulletin that was given to you when you walked in this morning. And you know what's interesting about this card? It's an opportunity for everyone to communicate with the church. And uh, our desire as a church is to connect people to Jesus for life change. And I just want to encourage you that it's still happening. For those that are in Christ, their lives are being changed. And for those that don't know Christ, some are coming to know him. They come to a theater. Someone invited them, a family or friend, or they heard about it, the church online, and they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they say yes to that. They couldn't deny it any longer. In fact, over the last handful of weeks, I thought you'd want to know as a church family that people have marked on this card, today I have asked Christ, Jesus Christ, to be my Savior. Isn't that cool? It keeps happening. So that's the point. Over nine years, it's still happening. So I praise God for that. If you'd like to know more about Southbridge, actually today is a good day that you're here because after each service, we have what we call Discovering Southbridge. It happens in the what they call as the party room here at the theater. And so right after this service or the next service, you can go there and meet our um, pastors, some of their leaders, and get any questions you have answered about Southbridge. And after the second service today at 12.30, we're having what's called a fall festival just right over here at the Briar Creek Elementary School. There's a park there. Everyone is welcome to come. There's lunch provided, some games, and just a great opportunity to have some uh, community together. So please consider coming over there. You didn't, if you didn't plan on it, you didn't have anything to bring, that's okay. We want you to come anyway. Lots of things that are happening. This Thursday night, 7 o'clock at the office, please come to hear the rest of Kathleen's story. Celebrate Recovery meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. at the church office. And really what they're teaching there at Celebrate Recovery is the Beatitudes, which we find in the book of Matthew. And that just happens to be our next series. Next week, we begin a new series. We've invited the community to come. Hopefully, you'll return and you'll invite friends and family with you. A study of the Beatitudes. Um, We've entitled the series, So You Want to Be Happy. And that's because Jesus talks about happiness in a very different way than people perceive happiness to be. And he invites you to himself. And so please plan for coming to that, for that series. Bring friends and family. And please pray that God would use his word to change lives. And we want the same for this morning. We're just going to take a break between two series and study a psalm. I hope that you'll be refreshed and encouraged. Will you pray with me as we ask God to instruct us? Lord God, we come before you and we recognize that you are our sustainer. You are the author of our faith. We thank you, Father, for your word. And God, we ask that you would instruct and teach us this morning that you would be as a shepherd to us. For those that need to be encouraged, that they would, they'd be lifted up. For those that need to be challenged, that they would, and they would repent and turn to you. Lord, that we'd get a better glimpse of who you are, and in light of that, get a truer sense of who we are in light of you, and that we'd respond to your word. God, we ask you to fill this place with your presence, and that you do a work that only you can do, and that's life change. Please change us, Father. Grow us. We trust in you as we read your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Psalm chapter 91. The book of Psalm is probably in the middle of your Bible. And you can go ahead and bring your Bible every week because we use it every week at Southbridge. So Psalm 91, and we're going to work through the whole Psalm together. And I'm going to read the whole Psalm in one shot. And then we're going to go verse to verse through it as is our style. Are you ready? All right. Me and Chris are ready. Goodness gracious. It's okay. We don't be so formal. Okay. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You only observe with your eyes and will see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, the Lord says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What a psalm. A psalm is a, is a song. And we don't know actually the setting of this psalm, nor the author. Some believe that Moses wrote it because Psalm 90, if you look at your Bibles, will have the title that it's a prayer of Moses. We know that this is a psalm of trust. And if you're taking notes, that's one of the first things to write down, that this is a psalm of trust, just like Psalm 23 and Psalm 121 are. And psalms of trust create hope-filled worship and a renewal of life. That's the point of them. Psalm 90, the one before this, is a psalm of lament. And laments are common in this songbook. And laments um, relay feelings of alienation and even abandonment from God. The psalm after this one, Psalm 92, is actually one of joy or thanksgiving. So some theologians believe that Psalm 90, 91, 92, these three form a set. So if read in context, you have Psalm 90, a psalm of lament, alienation, abandonment from God, trouble, leading then to Psalm 91, a renewal of trust in God even in the midst of trouble, and then Psalm 92, joy. Sounds like life, doesn't it? The ebb and flow of life, hills and valleys, high points and low points. An interesting thing to know about Psalms of Trust, and you'll see it, and you probably already caught it as we read through the psalm, is Psalms of Trust do not dwell on the seeming contradiction between suffering of the righteous and a sovereign, all-powerful God. Instead, in the midst of uncertainty, trials, and suffering, Psalms of Trust like this urge the worshiper to say with the psalmist to the Lord, you are my refuge. Anyone need a refuge today? And so let's work section to section. If you're a note taker, this psalm can be broken down in several ways, but this morning we're going to break it down into three different sections. The first is this, verses 1 through 4. God's character is our source of comfort. Did you catch that? The first section is that God's character is our source for comfort. Let's look at it verse to verse. Look at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Your translation for the word shelter might say secret place. When I was in church growing up in the 90s, there was a chorus that was sung at church. You are my hiding place. What was your hiding place as a child? The best spot. If you played hide and go seek and you know this is the spot to go to, no one can get you there. Do you have one? My brother used to hide under like the um, bathroom cabinets inside them or like in the, uh, the dryer. We don't encourage that, children. It was a rough time in the 80s and 90s. What was your spot? Place in the woods? cabin under your bed. The scriptures here say that he who dwells in the secret place, hiding place, shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. 
The shadow here is really a metaphor for the word uh, care and protection. Look at verse 2. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. When we say the phrase, he is my refuge, that is an important phrase to know. But it's one that's kind of lost its luster as it's been brought into songs. And people say these phrases, but in time, maybe it's lost its intensity over many years. So to re-appreciate it, consider its opposite. What if your best chance for safety was that you'd have to depend on political alliances? If there was no God and your best chance to have any kind of safety was to make the best treaties and plans you could with other nations. Is there a guarantee in that? Can you think about those of you that know history? Think about anyone that agreed to something and then violated that thing? The book of Isaiah talks about that actually in Isaiah chapter 30 verse 2. What if your best chance for security, protection, care was to call out to a collection of idols, created things rather than the creator? Is there safety and security in that? The book of Isaiah talks about that in actually, actually in uh, chapter 57. And it's hard for us to consider that today because none of us would stoop so low to, to worship a created thing that's made out of stone or wood, right? Maybe our jobs, though, or our family, our bank account, but not those things. We're not that ridiculous. What if your best chance and hope for security, safety, comfort was to look at simply the people around you? Are they here forever? Your job? The economy? This or the next president? See, when you look at your life and you think just these first two verses, we need to pause. I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. It's hard sometimes to read a psalm because, is that true? Will we say of ourselves, the Lord is my fortress, he is who I turn to for comfort? The question I have here to ask for ourselves is, where do you look for for these things? To whom do you look for? The psalmist is calling the worshiper to, to find these things in the Lord and in his character even by the names that he uses. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust. The psalmist uses four different names to show us who this God is. And names and titles have um, an effect, don't they? They create an emotion. And to prove that, does anyone have this in their story? Basically, you push your mother to the brink and she says the phrase, wait till... Why would that even matter? I don't care if he can come home if he wants to come home. You ever say that? Emotion, right? The boss. We can name names for the past. Pharaoh, Hitler, Bin Laden. And names of ill repute and of good standing all conjure up a thought, feeling, emotion. Mom, dad, sister, brother. And it's the same with the Lord. And the psalmist is intentional in the names that he uses, trying to drive back the idea that the Lord can be our safe place, our hiding place, our comfort. But where are we often encouraged to look for comfort? Hold that thought. Let's look at some of the names. The first one, and underline these in your Bible if you give yourself permission to write in your Bible. Verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of most high. That's the word um, in Hebrew, Elyon, verse 1. Most high. It's a name that can be found in Genesis chapter 14. It means that he is higher than the kings of the earth, that he is, he is higher than the false gods of all the nations. He is um, the possessor of heaven and earth. The God who is over all things. I will 
dwell. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. That's Elyon. That's the God we're speaking about. There's another name he uses. We'll rest in the shadow of the Almighty. That's the second name. Almighty. Shaddai. Verse 1. It means all-sufficient. Great in grace. The one adequate for every situation to provide for your very need. It's the title that God uses in um, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, when he's calling Abraham, Abram at the time, out of his old land and away from all that he knew to separate from it and to follow him. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't know how God was going to provide and come through for him. Does this sound like your life? But God is called the Almighty there, the God that would provide for every need. And actually, we see a similar calling out for believers, not just Abram, but you fast forward to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 16. This is Paul writing to a church that had a lot of trouble because there was people in it. Every church has some trouble. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So he's talking about how we join, why would we join with the world? You might know this context as um, not being unequally yoked. Okay, for we are the temple of a living God. As God said, I will live with him, with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Next verse. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no one clean, clean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. There's the word, same word, New Testament as the old. Next verse, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Same calling to Abraham is to us, to trust in him as the almighty that he'll meet your need. Some of the hardest things for me to do in that was helping, was coming to move here to help plant Southbridge. That was over nine years ago, nine years, two months. We didn't know anybody here, we raised money like missionaries to be here from people who'd never be here. Our pursuit of adoption there's another one for us that was just trusting the Lord's provision he provided through his people. You know, it should bring comfort to us to know that God is able and can provide according to our needs. But that's the catch, isn't it? Because sometimes we're not sure what a need is. We have lots of wants. But he knows our need. He's the Almighty. When you reference the Lord in prayer, you can reference him as Almighty. There's another name that's used. Did you see it? Verse 2, I will say of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. This name in Hebrew is uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. Verse 2, this is uh, the covenant-making and keeping God who is, who is faithful to his promises. The eternal, eternal, unchangeable I am. The, I am the one who was, is, and ever will be. What a God, one that could never break a promise. So if we try to find our security in someone else, a treaty with another land, has anyone ever lied to you before? Have you ever lied to somebody before? So neither you or them are reliable. The Lord's never lied. And we're invited to consider him to be our hiding place, the one that we go to for comfort. What comfort would it give you to know that if you make, receive a promise from God, that he'll never violate it? Yesterday I did a wedding, and the couple shared some traditional vows for better, for worse, for rich, for poor, and sickness and health. And I've shared this before at Selfridge. I wonder if couples should be really honest sometime and say, for better, for you know, rich or poor, unless you're really poor, and sickness and health, unless you're really sick. Because that's what they mean, right? It's conditional. But when the Lord does a promise in exchange in, in the relationship, he never violates his promise. Capital L-O-R-D. This is Yahweh. Uh, Shaddai, we have, we have Almighty. We've got Jehovah. 
faithful. So these are the things we sung about all morning so far. There's one more. Did you catch it? Verse 2. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The most common expression that we probably use for God. Do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. Well, I believe there's a force, and I guess you could call it God. Impersonal or personal. Which is it for you? When we say God, it's the word Elohim, verse 2 here. Elohim, it's, it means the powerful creator God whose greatness and glory surpass anything we can imagine. Imagine it. It's better than that. All different names reflecting God's character. What do people call you? What Does your name reflect any character? When someone hears your name, what do they think? The Lord is better than that. The best person you know in your life, that you can come up here and testify to the best person you know, the best Christian you know, the testimony that they have of them, he's better than that. The psalmist calls the worshiper, as we're singing the song, psalm, to dwell on God's character by these names because God's name, God's character brings comfort. Psalm 121 verse 5, another psalm of trust says, The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The idea of shade, the idea of comfort. So let's be personal and practical when we look at a psalm. What do you turn to for comfort? There's no one like him. So I'll tell you mine and you think about you. For me, I can turn to food for comfort. There's nothing like the high of banana cream pie. Right? I turn to others for comfort. I can turn to my wife for comfort. But do I turn to the comforter for comfort? The Holy Spirit is called the comforter. This is God's God's spirit. Do I give him a shot? Things are down. I'm depressed. I'm troubled. I'm anxious filled. Do I bring my anxieties before the Lord because he, as First Peter 5, 7, cares for me? Or do I quickly go to another friend first before ever giving the Lord a shot? How many times do I bring other people to my trouble before I ask the Lord and he answers me? Addictions is a comfort issue usually. Either running away from trouble or hiding in trouble or because you've caused trouble. You just want an escape. What about giving the Lord a shot? So we turn to alcohol, drugs, gambling. Nothing like the high of that win and nothing like the low of the loss, right? Nothing can bring comfort as the Lord does. See, the comforter comes with him. He brings with him stuff that you can't conjure up. He brings up peace, which we usually think is the absence of conflict, but it's not. It's actually peace in the midst of conflict. Why? Because you're hiding in the Lord. Your comfort's in the Lord. You've got him You're with him. The psalmist is encouraging the worshiper, and if you're a Christian, that means you, to find your hiding place in the Lord. We're to dwell, find comfort in the Lord and his character. Look at verse 3. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare, like the person that catches birds there, and from deadly pestilence. Verse 4. He will cover you with his feathers and part be here, and under his wings you will find refuge. In Matthew chapter 23 and in Luke chapter 13, we read Jesus describing uh, his longing for his people in the same way. He says, oh, Jerusalem, you are as chicks that I'd like to gather and hide under my wings, like the wings of a mother hen. Jesus borrows the psalmist's language. And in Psalm chapter 57, the scripture says, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until disaster is past. 
Psalm 63, you might know this one. Because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. One translation says, I will sing with joy in the shadow of your wings. Trouble on the outside of the shelter, but I will sing. That reminds me of Paul and Silas. You ever heard that story before? Is that story in your mind? They're in jail for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And what are they doing in jail? What's wrong with them? Singing. They're, they've made the Lord their hiding place. We see wings language, this wings metaphor, for the Lord's protective care, all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11. It's idea of sheltering under God's tenderness. The scriptures say that his kindness leads to repentance. I don't know where it came that people started putting on God that he's always angry with you. The Deuteronomy references about as like the eagle and his wings. And then we rejoice in the comfort found in him. It's hard to rejoice in him when you're seeking your comfort in other people or things. He actually gets robbed of glory. So then we glory the food or we glory the addiction. We glory the other person. We glory our job. Unless those things are removed, then we might turn to the Lord in our distress, huh? Look at part C of verse 4. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. His faithfulness will be your shield. Uh, God gives actually us, God gives us the ultimate armor, doesn't he? And what is the armor? What does the text say? Himself, his faithfulness. Now in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, Christians are told to put on the full armor of God, including the shield, which is called the shield of whose faith? Faith in what? Actually, Faith in whom? See, the shield of faith is actually looking to be protected by God's faithfulness. The shield of faith is faith in God and his faithfulness. Sometimes we think about the shield of our own faith, how awesome and strong our faith is. And our faith does need to grow. And that grows by knowledge and relationship, training and relationship, discipleship, relationship. But it's ultimately our shield around us is God's faithfulness. The psalmist says that his faithfulness will be your shield. Look at it again. Verse C, part C of verse 4, and rampart. His faithfulness will not only be your shield, but also rampart. In your translation, on the King James Version, the King's language, the King's English, it's buckler. A rampart, this word here in the Hebrew means to go around. It would describe a mound of earth that goes around a fortress. So the Lord's character of faithfulness has you actually 360 degree covered. He's got you, your six. In here, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12. That means we're, whatever gets to you in life, and we've taught this before at Southbridge, whatever comes through to you into your life is only by then his sovereignty and not by his inability. And if someone teaches you that God wishes he could intervene, but he can't, that's open theism and that's heretical. Okay? That's anti the Bible. But we have to decide if we, we trust that. See, living as, as trusting that brings a lot of peace. Now remember, the, the psalmist is saying that God's protection of his children is actually consequential upon taking refuge in him. It's one of those if-thens in the Bible. There's some. You don't have an if-then with God's love for you because he loves you even if you hate him. Because he demonstrated that in sending his son so that you might, through him, have a relationship with the Father. 
However, this is an if then. If we take refuge in him, then we have these things. You must dwell, rest, find refuge, safety, and comfort in him. And if it's not in him, guess what? It will be in someone or something else, and you'll lose. Nothing is as good and sweet as him and his comfort. That's the first section. The next section is verses 5 through 13. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The next section is really God's character. The first was our source for comfort, and the next section is our source for courage. Look at verse 5. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread upon this lion and this cobra. You will trample upon the great lion and serpent. We see here then this call to not be afraid. Do you know what the most common command in the Bible is? Do not be afraid. Why is it so common in the Bible? Because that's exactly what we do. Hmm? Do not be anxious for anything. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. It's usually then stated afterwards with a promise, for I'm with you. I'll go wherever you go. This section right in this psalm here really emphasizes that we, we don't have to be afraid of what's happening in the world, in our little world, or what comes our way. Darkness, disaster, war, sickness, harm, death. Because the Lord watches over those that are dwelling in him. So why are we afraid? Would anyone want to testify right now with one sentence why you're afraid? If we know this, why are you afraid? Lack of faith, Jim says. Mm -hmm. Trust, synonyms there, yeah. So we have an opportunity to share the gospel with other people, but we're afraid. We have an opportunity to be a be salt and light in the world as Christ has and was to us and is to us, and we are afraid of what people think. And you look at the world around us, and Christians around the world are proclaiming Christ's name even unto their death. How is that possible? By God's grace, number one, they dwell in him to whatever end. Hmm? Look at verse 9. If you make the most high, and there is a reference again to the Lord, your dwelling, even the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Hmm. See, these are, pro these are popular promises, and I don't know if you know this or not, but both Jews and Christians have placed these words of this section of the psalm like in amulets to serve as like a good luck charm. Did you know that? Some kind of personal protection that the torn out page then serves as the protection. But who's the protector? Our Lord. Wrongly, some have amplified the promise here of angels, angelic protection, found in verse 11, as the basis of everyone having a, their own personal angel and actually making them a being of veneration 
Some people take this text and then turn around and worship angels. Guess, let me tell you something about that. If you ever hear that stuff, angels that are with the Lord want God to be worshiped. In fact, in the, in the scriptures, every time someone seeks to bow down or worship an angel, they say, no, no, don't. Okay. A little bit of teaching there. Warning. See, we don't see God's angels at work on every page of scripture. It's actually a rare occurrence. However, I can only wonder, in light of the truth that this psalmist is writing about, is how often God protects us at the command of his angels when we aren't even aware. See, we're quite aware of the trouble that comes upon us, sickness and anxiety and loss and death. But I wonder, and this is just a bit of conjecture here, how often is God blocking, nope, 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 the water gets cut off here, nope, that water can come through there, nope, sickness here, that's okay, they'll trust in me, that's good for them, nope, nope. We don't even know. My children don't know that we lock the doors at night. My children don't know how we pray for them. We've prayed with them, but they don't know to the great lengths that I pray. And if I'm trying to be a loving father, how much better is God who is a loving father? Protecting. Verses 11 and 12 uh, may sound familiar. Did you catch that when we read through it before? You may be recalling Christ's temptations in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 through 7, we actually see these same parts of the psalm in there. Do we have that? Matthew chapter 4. Then the devil, that's Satan, the accuser, took him, speaking of Jesus, to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now Jesus had been walking in the wilderness, fasting 40 days and nights. This is called a supernatural fast. And is being tempted. This is the second temptation, I believe. And look at this phrasing. Even Christians use phrasings like this. If, not since, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Does that verse look familiar? It's right in our Psalm 11 and 12. Next verse. Jesus answered him. You know what? You're right. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Incredible answer. You know what we learned from that exchange? is that the accuser knows the Bible. Satan commands Jesus to jump from the temple, promising the angels would come to his rescue because the Bible says, doesn't it? Seems as though the deceiver knows God's word, but to jump without the father's command and Christ only did what the father told him to do would have been a presumption, not an act of faith. So when we look at the psalmist's words here, and we're trusting the Lord that we can presume about God's faithfulness, that doesn't mean we can presume about what we're free to do because God's faithful. Should I sin? Should I do my own thing because God's grace is evident? No, of course not. Certainly not, the scriptures say. So if Jesus would have jumped, it would be, as Jesus said, an attempt at tempting the Father. A challenge here, don't use the scripture like Satan does. I wish Satan would have quoted verse 13 in our psalm. Look at that again. You will tread upon the lion and cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Why did Satan use this one with Jesus on the temple? You want to know why? Because those are references to himself. Hmm? In the scripture, we see that Satan is the serpent. In the Genesis chapter two, uh, 3, we see it again in the New Testament. And then we also see that he's like a... A roaring lion seeking to devour, really devour and crunch on the faith and pull away the faith from those that believe. Seeking to, he's seeking to kill and destroy. This is the accuser. 
Look at 1 Peter, just to give you a reference, chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Lion, great lion, verse 13 in our text. Looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Has anyone seen the news? We know more news than ever because of how small our world is with social media. It's hard to know what's true or not true. But brothers and sisters in the faith have been suffering since Christ's resurrection. Peter is right. But our Lord, the psalmist says, gives us victory over the enemy. If God is for us, then who could be against us? I used to think about that when I was a youth, thinking about it in basketball terms. I loved basketball. I played basketball as a kid in elementary, middle school, high school. And I used to think about who was my teammates. And our best players each time used to give me some courage. And I'd look at their, it's always look, sizing each other up during warm-ups. You know, and they're like, oh no, they got a six-foot guy. So as a middle schooler, I think of that kind of idea of God is for us. If, God, if you're on his team, then you're winning. If you're dwelling and finding your rest and your comfort and your courage is welling up because this section's about not afraid. I don't have to afraid the, the opposition. I don't have to be afraid of them because I've got the Lord or I'm, I'm with him. I'll let me stand behind him. Once you get through him, maybe you can get to me. Why can we have courage and not fear in the face of world events or trials or sufferings and Satan prowling and tempting? Why is that possible? Because we trust in the name of the Lord. Most high, almighty God. His character is the source of our courage. So I would contend that in those moments that you feel the spirit prompting, like you should share with your loved one about the, share the gospel with your loved one, but you're afraid, you're afraid to share with a coworker or a friend or a neighbor, that fear comes up. The likelihood of you also dwelling in the Lord is very small. So when the spirit prompts you, he always empowers you to do what he's called you to do. He'll give you the words to say and how to say it. You don't have to know everything because no one knows everything but our king. Boldly proclaim simply what God has done in your life because you trust in him. You're inviting them to trust in him, not you. Next section, verses 14 through 16. And right here we really see God's character as our source of contentment. Look at verse 14. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. Your translation there may say, knows my name. This is the Lord speaking. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So now it's the Lord that's speaking. The, the author's changed a bit here. It's the Lord and his, his words showing us his promises to the expression of trust in him by his worshipers found in verses 1 through 13. And we see seven actions of God to those who love him or know him. Did you catch them? You can even write these down and just think about these this week. I will rescue. I will protect. I will answer. I'll be with him in trouble. I will deliver. I will honor. I will satisfy. I will show. Oh, man. And people question if God's at work. How does he do these seven things times the 400 adults that may be here today? So seven times 400. 2,800 doings. Verse 14 emphasizes 
the essential prerequisite for participating in God's comprehensive plan for protection. It's an active, personal, close relationship with the Lord. That's why we have these phrases. Did you see them? You could underline them. Because he loves me. And then also, for he acknowledges or knows my name. Because he knows my name. First one, because he loves me. The word translated love here is actually not the usual word we see in the Old Testament for love. But this word means to, um, to cling to, to cleave, uh, an intense and passionate connection. Because the worshiper clings to me, cleaves to me, has a passionate connection to me, then I will. So what's the implication? I think it's the more you get to know him, the more you love him. So I had asked myself this question this week. Do I have this for God? Because I like what God does for me. And that's what most people mean by love. I said the same thing several times at Southbridge and in weddings yesterday. We get a lot of mileage out of this word love. I say I love God and I say I love mint chocolate chip ice cream. God should be offended. So what does the psalmist mean? Cling to, cleave, intense, passionate. And I've had moments of that. And I've had lots of moments of not that. So why would I expect God then to be at my bidding if I'm not that tight with him? Maybe the wonder should be, how can I get that kind of love? Here's the answer, loved one. You ready? Get to know him. As you get to know him, it'll well up. For those of you that are married, you didn't just um, probably weren't married then were, unless you were arranged in marriage, and maybe someone here was. That exists today. But I'm guessing for those of you that grew up here in this this part of the world, you found someone and you grew to love them or grew in love is the phrase of them as you got to know them. It's the same with the Lord, except for that's eternal. Because he loves me is the first phrase. And the second was just to focus on a bit was because he knows my name or your translation may say as the NIV does acknowledges my name. The verb knows or acknowledge actually expresses a close personal relationship again. How many people do you think identify themselves as Christian in our context, talk about God, make requests of him, but don't know him? I can remember as a child collecting uh, sports memories, especially um, baseball cards, and you could send away cards with a self-addressed stamped envelope hoping that they would autograph and send back. And I could talk about my favorite players at that time, but I didn't know them. I could say how they performed. I could talk about their testimony on the ball field, but I didn't know them. I'd make requests of them. Can you sign this for me and get it back to me? I didn't, I didn't know them. They didn't know me. And yet some people have that same kind of relationship with God. They want to make requests of him, demands of him, talk about him to other people. But they don't have a personal relationship with him. That's real. Not to mention then vibrant, passionate. How many of us want something from God but actually don't want him? That's Santa. So the question I was thinking about this week, and you can write it down and just think about it with the Lord is, am I taking time to get to know him? You can say, well, I don't have time. I don't know. A loving, understanding relationship with God then requires ongoing communication, just like a loving relationship with anybody else would. And that's what verse 15 states with the phrase, when he calls. Look at verse 15 again, loved ones. He will call upon me, that's prayer, and I will 
answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. See, prayer is one way we can experience the Lord's profound commitment to doing good. That's his commitment. His commitment is to do good in our lives. So the Lord promises here, whenever he calls, I will answer. We just sang that this morning. Some people have trouble with that, like God's only responding to us if he's always second. And that's not true. He's proactive. And he responds. The text says he does. Whenever he calls, I will answer. So among God's blessings in this life will be answered prayer. Not always the answer we want, mind you. Companionship in times of trouble. Honor, satisfaction. In that word satisfaction, satisfy. As you see in verse 16, we could use for the word contentment. Look at verse 16 again. With long life I will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. See, this is contentment language. And isn't contentment uh, for many of us like we just wish we could find the secret for that? We've tried money, but it's never enough. And we've tried family and friends or loved ones. We've, we've tried that special guy or special gal, and it's not enough. We try accolades, and it's not enough. We try possessions, but it doesn't. I, there's got to be something more. <laughs> the promise of long life here is uh, linked to, in the Old Testament to following God's law. And Warren Wearsby once said, though, in, of this verse, um, it's one thing for doctors to add years to your life, but it's, God adds life to our years. And maybe that's the sentiment of the psalmist. Something that's really happened. Because the scriptures say, whoever has the son has life. And life to the full. How can that be true if people are suffering? If there's faithful people that are suffering? So what does a life that is satisfied in him look like? You may ask the question, and as I ask, I want to be contented, so how do I do that? How can I be contented? And this week I was thinking of that, and the answer so far I've got is this, is you don't do it. God does it in you as you dwell in him. That's what the text says. What does it say? Those that love me, those that know my name, I will satisfy him. Who does the satisfying? The Lord. So what's my job? God does this as I hide, abide, dwell, take refuge, trust, and obey him. He brings the contentment, which is great because it's such a heavy burden to try to find it. Don't search for contentment. Dwell in the Lord. Godliness with contentment is great gain, the scriptures say. What a find. So let's be honest about this text. Okay, just for a moment as we close here. Here's was my battle, you know, picking a, a message to do in between two series, you'd think it would be easy because it's whatever I want to do. But I have to ask, what does the Lord want to speak to our church family as we get ready for the next series? And I battle. And I really didn't want to do this psalm or Psalm 121, which I referenced a few times, because of the seeming contradiction. How can Psalm 91 promise all this if in reality we see its opposite? Is my wonder. So how can I have any confidence to speak before this body that I love so much? Because we could ask, has anyone that's trusted in the Lord, truly trusted in the Lord, ever been snared? Caught disease? Do you know any Christian that's caught disease before? Fell in a battle? Experienced evil? Lost people to a plague? Crashed against a stone and failed to be delivered in the hands of evil people? Does anyone know of any faithful believer that has experienced that? If so, then wouldn't we say that Psalm 91's a lie? That's how some people view the scriptures. 
I mean, Christ himself experienced trouble, didn't he? The scriptures say that he's a man of sorrows. He's on the cross. He quotes the book of Psalm, that my enemies encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. That's the psalmist language, and Christ says it. And since his resurrection, people have suffered. And even in our days, we know that faithful followers around the world, faithful followers of the Lord, those that are dwelling in the Lord, have lost their lives in brutal ways for their faith. And yet some people use scriptures like these to accuse others who are facing harm by saying phrases like, the reason why this bad thing's happening to you is because you're not faithful. Sometimes, but sometimes not. See, Job's friends said the same thing, but they didn't know the backdrop there. In fact, Jesus' disciples said this one time to a guy that was born blind, and they asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Did his parents sin, or did he sin in utero? And what does Jesus say? Because trouble does come upon people by other people's sin, doesn't it? But Christ says in this regard, it wasn't because of his parents' lack of faith or this guy's lack of faith in utero. It was he was born blind so that God's glory would be on display today. A totally different option. See, we'd not, we shouldn't use Psalm 91 against those that are experiencing trouble, okay, loved ones? That's like using the Bible like Satan used the Bible with Jesus, just in a different way. Why? Because mankind is born into trouble the book of Job says. Christ even promises his own disciples that in this life would be trouble, but to take heart because he'll be with them and he's overcome it all. That means that the Lord is a redeemer, another name for him that should bring comfort, who can and does use life's difficult circumstances for his glory. This is why in the Old Testament through New Testament, we see the same thing. Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. At the very end of the story, we catch this awesome phrase, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. How is that possible? And yet we're still wondering about the conundrum of Psalm 91. Doesn't Psalm promise no harm? No storm's going to hit your way? What do we say to the people in Columbia, South Carolina then? To the people in New Orleans? Hebrews 11, chapter 34, 34, verse 34 says that some Christians by faith escaped the sword, and then three verses later says this, and by faith others were killed by the sword. And an escape of their... In escape or death, their testimony of faith encourages others. Jesus said to his disciples, some of you will be put to death. A promise they probably didn't want to hide in their heart. Then a few verses later, he says, but not a single hair of your head will perish. So which is it, Jesus? Will some of us perish or not even our, well, I just get it, not even a haircut. The truth is that God saves from danger and also saves in danger. He does rescue. However, God also permits his children to experience trouble even while In his tender care, under his wings, he allows stuff to come through. But he forbids that that suffering take his children into eternal destruction. See, nothing can take away our relationship from him. (laughs) That's why the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, in such a thought, a famous verse. Can we look at it in Romans chapter 8? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Sounds like Psalm 91. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. This is Paul, as well experiencing trouble for sharing the gospel. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can someone who dies for the faith also be a conqueror? There's something eternal happening here. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So maybe Psalm 91 isn't really that inconsistent as a psalm of trust, calling to assume God's character even in trouble. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, theologian, has something to say about this psalm. It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. Ill to him is not ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. (laughs) Happy is he who is in such a case. And that's what we'll be talking about in the next series, this happiness. He is secure where others are in peril. He lives where others die. So the security in Psalm 91, to close here, promises, these promises here are to be accepted in humble trust. A prayer would be, I trust, Father, that your love will protect me as I trust in you. Whatever comes my way, you are with me, and you will never leave me nor forsake me. No matter the circumstances, you are the safest place, the secret place. You're my hiding place, and you're my source of comfort, courage, and circumstances. In every way, you are my place for contentment. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that you are our Lord, Almighty God. We trust in you. We believe. Help us with our unbelief. I pray, God, that you would use this body to edify and encourage one another and that you'd use us to encourage other believers. I pray, Lord, for the suffering believers around the world, God, that you'd give them faith like your servant Stephen, that they'd even see you, that they'd pronounce your name, Jesus, even unto their death. And if you are to save them, that you'd receive the glory for their death or their salvation. Nothing can separate us from you. We're so grateful, God, for your commitment, your faithfulness. We worship you this morning. Lord, cause in us, renew in us a new desire to get to know you. Therefore, we can love you. Thank you for loving us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I trust that this week you'll grow in the Lord. And uh, let's pray for one another. Have a wonderful week, and I hope I can see you at lunch in a few hours.